Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more of our shows, please visit brumradio.com. Hello, and welcome to the Geeky Rubby Show at Birmingham Comics Festival. Hello, I am joined by the Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Keith Bloomfield. Good afternoon. I am joined by the cosplay legend himself, Aces and Armour, Mr. David Whitney. Cosplay legend? Who's that? And we're joined by the award-winning Mr. David Bramauer massey Hello. Blagger of the year. So we've rocked up to Birmingham Comics Festival here at Parkside Media House, round the corner from the studio in Digworth. So a little bit of a day trip for us. Not too far away this time. A bit slightly closer than Southampton. Just a little bit. Yeah. And we do have a very lovely view out across the city. We've yes. got uh, Curzon Street Station. Uh, and then the rest of the, of the city in the background. It's very nice. It's not as sunny today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, it's a beautiful part of the city. Not yeah, it's beautiful. Not so. as warm either, which is nice. There's some wonderful guests here today. So we're going to have David Lloyd chatting to him a little bit later. The co-creator of V from Vendetta. who were talking about his new comic serial online, which is Aces Weekly. Aces Weekly, yeah. yeah. Looking really forward to that. Hunt Emerson is here, wandering around. Brilliant political satiricist. Uh, Lou Stringer's here. Phil Winslade is here and I think he was just having a quick talk in the room wasn't he and arguing well, with the uh, yeah. <laughs> there was an interesting discussion between how d- two different artists would approach the, uh, the same comic uh, panels yes. which is which is the thing about how comics are drawn a lot of artists were bringing their own their own personal uh, pers- yeah yes. yeah so and how they interpret the story so it's really interesting you know in- insight into the, the process uh, also here, Mike Collins, Al Davison, Laura Howell, Ron Tyner, David Hitchcock, David Leach, Roland Bird. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, It's a pretty impressive yes. list of, of, of really good creators, many of whom are local to the city as well. Yes, brilliant yeah. to see some local people here. Um, David, this is your first time where we've thrown you into an event like this. You're enjoying yourself so far? Now you've uh, woken up a little uh, bit? Uh, I was feeling very, very fragile this morning after, <laughs> after Geeky Brummy uh, drinks last night. <laughs> Enjoying the space, and there's some creative people in the. Uh, there's some creative people down in the corridor as well, down in the yes. uh, in, in BCU. Uh, passionate comic. I mean, people actually drawing yeah. comics at comic fe- a comic festival is just brilliant. Just to to see yeah. that happening as well. So. Hello, Damien from Watermore Primary School. Hello. Welcome to the Geeky Remy Portable Studio. Can you explain to us why you are here? Listeners are probably wondering why a primary school is attending a comics festival. Um, that is because for the past. Ooh, four years now, we've been holding our own mini comic convention at mm-hmm. the school, aimed specifically at children. So what was the inspiration for Watermore Primary School having a comic convention? Um, a few things. I mean, I'd been to a lot of comic conventions. They very often didn't have anything for kids at all, or they said they had stuff for kids and there wasn't really anything there. So I'd take my own kids around, yes. and they were bored very, very quickly. Yeah, And I thought... It wouldn't take much to alter all the stuff that's done on kind of bigger conventions and aim it specifically yeah. at kids. And then comics generally, I mean, that's how I got into reading, is starting through reading comics. Mm-hmm. And at Watermill, we've got a lot of children who don't speak much English. Right. And comics can be really useful yeah. because you don't need to speak any English to either start drawing them or, or reading them. Yeah. I mean, the old phrase, co- uh, picture describes a thousand words, is very relevant to comics. I mean, comics are probably one of the easiest mediums, I'd say, to be able to get into after video. It's, it's a great way for kids to get into literacy, really. You're not intimidated by pages and pages of text. You've got the story, like you are saying, you've got the illustrations that will carry you through. There's not as many words per page, so it's much easier for kids to de- decipher what's going on. Yeah. 
I mean, um, comics are a big thing in popular culture now, so we've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe, DC coming through. Do you think that helps getting people involved in literacy and reading comics a little bit more? I think it helps. I don't, yeah. I mean, there seems to be a problem that a lot of kids were going to see the films, yeah. but they weren't necessarily then going and reading the comic. But I think with a, a, a bit of a push and help along the way, then they're much more interested. Because it seems to be the whole thing about you get franchises now like Marvel Cinematic Universe and it's all about the film that seems to have left the comic behind a little bit more. Yeah. But that's a brilliant way to get people more engaged into the stuff. We have the turn on the head now where the movies are making comics themselves which are completely separate lines to the original comics. Mm. And it's kind of a flip side with that. Do you find that a lot? People expecting more of the movie style comics rather than the original style? Yeah. Oh definitely. That, that's what kids know and that's what's been advertised to them you say you've been running the convention for a couple of years now how have parents taken to it because i'm assuming the kids are quite up for doing it and and how are the parents reacting what are the what kind of people are you getting coming to the school see the first shock was that the head teacher let me do it in the first place when i first suggested it i went in with a a big list of reasons why comic convention was would be a really good idea and and she went oh yeah they're quite popular we should have one of those i was like oh okay then parents i mean we've got a lot of children from abroad and i spend a lot of my time kind of explaining what a comic convention is and what you do there so getting them sort of in into the convention in the first place can be quite difficult because they don't know what to expect parents from children in, in britain haven't been to any comic conventions yeah but then when they get in they have an amazing time come closing we always have the problem that we quite like people to leave now <laughs> but they won't go they're having such a good time yeah and we think looking at the clock thinking the caretaker is going to get very angry because he wants to lock the school up yeah i mean it sounds nice to have it in a, in probably a smaller venue i mean probably a lot of people who listen to the show are used to the big kind of conventions mm. you'll see at the nec where about half the day through i know my legs turn to jelly and i've pretty much had enough of walking around the same 24 aisles time and time again and you don't really get to speak to anybody because it's that busy that packed and you just find having it at a smaller venue really helps with getting engagement with people yeah, it helps that you know I'm taking my kids to the school, so I can be there on the, on the gate explaining to parents every day. Anyway, setup is it's problematic because I get in the way of teachers who are trying to teach while I'm trying to move stuff into the school to set it up. Having it kind of a small scale, it does it does help. What kind of creators are you attracting in small the smaller press scene or? Anything leading up to it, I'll write to anybody I can think of and see who'll help support us. And quite often you, you get a reply from somebody who goes, this is a fantastic idea. I wish we'd had it when I was at school. It would yeah. help me get into reading. Now you've done it for a few years. What's the next step for you as a school? Would you like to, to use such a word, franchise it out to other schools in your local area? Would you kind of like to take it on the road or do anything it, more interesting well, that, with it? That, that was suggested, actually, because talking, I mean, Hunt Emerson has been coming for the past three. And he said, it, you know, you could very easily take this on the road. I mean, this is the first year, really, we've advertised it outside of the school coming here to the festival i mean i mean too much because i do it as cheap as possible i put the ticket prices really really cheap so there's always a sort of financial risk yeah do i buy too much equipment you know too much and then we won't get the people coming in to cover that cost uh, which i'm then passing on to the school so yeah must be a fine balancing act because you want to make it as accessible as humanly possible at the end of the day it still needs to pay for itself and then we are a little school hidden away down a (laughs) cul-de-sac um that 
you know, people get lost trying to find. Maybe you ever thought about looking for a different venue? I mean, we're here today at Parkside Media House, which is not a million miles away from Millennium Point. Have you thought I, about expanding out? We just don't have the money. I don't think we're quite lucky that you know, we can have the school for free. There's no, yeah. there's no problems with that, and it keeps our costs low, which is good for getting kids in. If we went outside, it complicates matters yes. quite a lot, and I don't. We wouldn't have the money to really to start up unless we got sponsorship from somebody. Yeah. I mean, we do struggle for space. Yeah. It's like, um, <laughs> There's only I, so many gyms you can take over, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, we've only got so many tables and only so many things fit in the school. Yeah. And I've actually got more ideas for things to do there than will actually fit in the building. Mm-hmm. So it does mean we're having to not do stuff. Once you get your kids interested in, in comics and the visual storytelling medium at the Comic-Con part, do you then roll that into more general curriculum? Are you getting the kids in the school to make their own comics, tell stories in in a visual fashion as part of their kind of everyday learning? Oh, you're best asking the teachers that one. I know leading leading up to the event, this year we got Laura Howlin to do a workshop. So she did a workshop on how to put together comics. And then they went away and, and made their own comics. And then some of them we've put together and made our own school comic book. And then what often happens is, I mean, this being in the summer, it come the autumn. Well, last autumn, a little girl came up to me and go, here's the comic for next year's comic book. I haven't even got a date for the convention yet, <laughs> but it does seem, they seem to get excited by it. Oh, that is a wonderful thing to see. It's, it sounds like the ideal opportunity, because of the, the rise of Small Press Day, the ideas of schools putting together comics to release on Small Press Day. So, you know, you could, rather than running the convention at yeah. every school, you could encourage them to contribute to a comic that, that gets released through Small Press Day, either digitally online, so you your printing costs are down or kind of you know do short runs on the old school photocopiers get the older blue carbon paper out yeah, yeah, yeah sounds yeah, good I, well <laughs> last week i did run off all the copies of this year's comic on the uh, school photocopier i wasn't very popular as staff <laughs> wanted to uh, photocopy stuff for lessons but yeah is that the overnight job was it <laughs> yeah i'm sure the kids were more interested in having comics printed out than they were that night's algebra homework so that sounds like a fantastic event and when is this year's convention? Uh, this is the 1st of July. So not too far away at all, just a week. I, I know. I'm getting a bit stressed about it now. <laughs> Brilliant. And where can we find the information about you online? We are Watermill Schools, so the website is www.watermill.beham.seh.uk. Brilliant. Thank you very much, and we'll look forward to hearing from you soon. Yeah, good luck with the event. Hello, introduce yourself and welcome to Geeky Rummy. Oh, thank you. I'm uh, Mark Newboff from Jedi News, and I also write for this Star Wars Insider magazine as well. Awesome. So, I assume you're a big fan of the wars and not the Trek, then? I, well, actually, I write for the official Star Trek magazine as well, so I'm a bit of both. I'm, I'm dodging Franchise agnostic. Walking along the line there. Desperate. I bet he has to keep that quiet sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> so, lightsaber and the phaser, one in each hand, Exactly. Can, one cancels the other one out, I think. <laughs> and you're delivering a talk in about 20 minutes, hopefully. About 20 minutes, yeah, fingers crossed. Um, yeah, about Star Wars and Star Wars and comics, so the relationship between Star Wars and comics. Obviously, I'll, I'll probably babble on like I always do about Star Wars comics but yeah nothing, but yeah, nothing wrong with that well, there are some beautiful Star Wars comics out there I mean it seems to be something that's come quite a lot back especially with the Darth Vader series yes. Doctor Aphra yeah, yeah. has returned yeah. so it's good to see a few comics yeah, back in that, the market well like you're saying about the comics the uh, Screaming Citadel although I I have been reading a lot of modern Star Wars comics 
And I kind of miss the days when there was no expanded universe and there was nobody dictating what actually happened. And you had Cannon like really, yes. you know, the old uh, you know, kind of Archie Goodwin comics and yeah. the kind of Carmine Fen and Fantania ones that were just crazy sci-fi uh, space opera stories. I kind of yeah. miss those a little bit. The influence of Star Wars, I mean, Lucas originally wanted to make a Buck Rogers film and a, or a Flash Gordon film rather and, and couldn't couldn't get the rights to do it. But when he brings in Goodwin and Williamson, like you just said, you know, that influence was hard built into their style. Yeah. So it definitely had that kind of vibe, especially when they did the dailies. They took over from Russ Manning doing the dailies, and that was, you know, that yeah. really had that kind mm. of feel to it. So yeah. it's, it's miss. I agree. I totally agree that the canon EU blur blur, you know, it's it's got crazy. It's yeah. got really crazy. Now, I've got to say though, I do like the fact that Marvel have brought back like all the um, like the combined collections, like for the comic strip stuff. And, yeah. You know, it's a, I think it's a really nice touch. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I, I've started collecting all the old Dark Horse stuff. Yeah. That's always nice to see. But I like, I do like the fact that they've gone for the, the little bit more not not obscure, but sort of the, the little bit less serious and yeah. the you know the less overreaching story arcs, and gone for the little. You know, little fun one shots and yeah. I mean, so Dark, nice Horse, Dark Horse did that really well, and hopefully yeah. Marvel will continue that. You know, the three PO one shot and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and it's Disney bringing everything in house, isn't it now? So yeah, it yeah. makes sense for them to bring the franchises together. For those who don't know what Jedi News is, do you want to introduce it to us? Uh, uh, yes, I would love to. We um, we well, well, the UK's biggest Star Wars fan site, pro probably the biggest one in Europe. But well, it's hard, it was hard to define. There's probably a site in Luxembourg bigger than us. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, we've been going for about ten years. Um, I ran a site called lightsaber for about 10 years before that mm -hmm. so the two sites sort of came together about six or seven years ago and uh, yeah we're a daily news site so you know we cover all the latest news and uh, we cover podcasts and, and collecting news and just just as much as we really can but you've had a very busy week with what's been going on with the han solo standalone movie then <laughs> yeah it was quite funny because we we do a, we've got some podcasts on our network and we do a show called radio 1138 which is like a news show and a, a convention mm -hmm. coverage yeah. show and we record usually record four or five days out generally if some breaking news comes in we'll do a quick five minute bit and I'll throw it in so we recorded the night before so the whole thing was oh wow you know Lord and Miller have gone and all the conjecture about who's going to take over I called it I did actually save on Howard yes. so I'm quite proud of that but I'm hoping it's going to be Arrested Development and so maybe that's <laughs> all I'm just run Howard in the background you make yes. a good point by the time the episode came out though um, obviously they'd announced Ron Howard because we're all yeah. going well the Star Wars show comes out on Wednesday and, and there's no way they can get the two things together because I know they filmed that about three days in advance yeah. and then that comes out and it's not announced and they're episode comes out and like an hour before the episode comes out they announce it's Ron yes. Howard's like you swines so, but I'm glad it's Ron Howard I think he'll I think he'll do a great job yeah, yeah just imagine like Lord and Miller think they're going to be directed this one and then Ron Howard pops up in the round no they're not yeah. <laughs> but if there's not at least a couple of rest development jokes squeezed in the last three weeks of filming I will be very depressed I want to see the Grinch in the cantina somewhere in the distance I think that, that would be a good little played by Clint Howard well, you might call him Chris Hemsworth in the background. He's worked with him on Rush, so yeah. that'd be a good interview. It's just a, like there's going to be a scene where there's like a space version of the entire Happy Days, but you know, <laughs> some kind of like alien fonts. The fonts, the fonts in space. That's maybe, what a Han Solo movie should really be. Maybe yeah. that's what happened to Jar Jar Binks. He became Star Wars's version of the fonts. Means they're going to ruin franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of Jar Jar Binks, what's your opinion on the prequels? I assume you're a massive originals fan. I, I love the originals, but I also love the prequels. I, I mean, they Good man. they they brought Star Wars back to the masses when it was, um, yep. you know, obviously the special editions was what really primed it, and and, mm -hmm. and you go back even further yeah. in the Empire, so there was a yeah. whole run up to that. But I think the prequels, 
I mean, they're, they're, they served a purpose. I they think. massively did, and and they're okay. Lucas, when he made Star Wars, had lots of constraints on him, mostly yeah. technical, partially studio. Empire, a bit less Jedi, a bit less than that as the, as the technology moved forward. I think there's a lot to be said for the whole less is more. You know, yeah. seeing less of the shark, seeing yeah. less of the alien, yeah. not being able to quite you know do that CG Jabba the or rather stop motion Jabba the Hutt he wanted to do in, yeah. in A New Hope. So having the full toolbox to his you know yeah. to his availability maybe wasn't the best thing. He didn't have the restraint. Maybe others did. Yeah. I think he was probably surrounded by a lot of people who went, "Yes, George Lucas," and that's all they could yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, increasingly. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think I think his his mistake, if, if any mistake, was that. And, and this is the interesting twist: is that Ron Howard was originally considered to be one of the directors for Phantom Menace before Lucas decided yeah. to do it himself. Oh. So there's a nice parity there. Mm. I think if Lucas had had different directors do the prequels, adding their own flavors well, to it, Empire is always going to be my favorite Star Wars film. Yeah, yeah. Same, one. Yeah. Having Lance Castan on directing that I think really helped that film a lot more yeah Kirsch yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and you know and you mentioned Kazdan I mean he's, he's written the script for the Han Solo film yeah. Yeah. He was, Awakens. and apparently according to rumours allegedly by the way if yes. anybody's listening <laughs> it, he was one of the big fractures between Lord and Miller because he wanted what yeah. was written on the script and Lord and Miller went yeah. we're improv guys um, mixing around exactly with yeah. I mean to be, to be fair given how well Lawrence Kasdan did the Han Solo material in Empire I think it's only right that he's the one who's actually come out and done the script for the Han Solo movie. He made Han Solo, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you had very little plot development with Han Solo in A New Hope because there was just so much he was trying to get through yeah. there, but yeah. Empire was a Han Solo movie with yeah. the rest of the minute. Yeah. I think it was very two defined movies. You had Luke's story on Dagobah, and then you had Han's story with the Bespin, the yeah. final back with Lando yeah. Calrissian. We got to see a lot more exploration of the character. So it's nice to see Lawrence Kasdan back involved in it. Is. It is that thing of, like, he's not a comedic character. No, he, he's he's a dramatic character with with humour. Yeah, yes. but he's a very serious guy. We yeah. can't. You, you, he, he is a he smuggler. Is this cynic. is a guy who, yeah. you know, he shot first. He's, he's not a guy yeah. who messes about. He's yeah. like he's he's a bit, yeah. very kind of deadly. He's a deadly character, and yeah. I think people forget that. He's, he's he's sarcastic, not comedic. Yeah, I think. and, and he's an easy character to get wrong as well. Yes. Yeah, you know, and that was easy. a great thing with the expanded universe. Again, we mentioned that earlier. It built on that character. We had a lot more influence, and we could see yeah. how Han Solo is quite an upset and quite a fractured individual. Mm, I mean, yeah. if somebody's come from the Imperial Academy, then had to give up his entire life, yep. yeah. then gone into smuggling, crime, and fell into a spiral. Yeah. I think if you read the Expanded Universe, some brilliant books in there, but Chewie is the one who saved him throughout the book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's why you have such that yeah. love relationship. I mean, like, it's funny you should say that. I'm actually reading the uh, the Han Solo trilogy at the moment. Yeah. And after, the addition to the Brian Daly ones? Uh, not, uh, not, no, not the... Yes, yeah, um, Crispin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'd forgotten just how well written they are and how how well they develop the story. Talking about the expanded news, it's great to see some of the non-canonical stuff come back in as well. So with Rebels, we've had Grand Admiral Thrawn, who's one yeah. of my all-time favourite characters. Yeah. Having him back in the canon, the impact, I think. Yeah. And I'd love to see him pop up in possibly something past Force Awakens. Mm, that Who could knows? be interesting. Who knows? I mean, obviously in the in the, in the novels, you know, he, he yeah. disappeared and met his fate and such. But I think in yeah. this one, then they've, they've kind of introduced him a little bit earlier than they did yes. in the novels. Yeah. Obviously, Eti Empire was after Jedi. Yeah. Um, but I think they've got they've definitely got scope to do it. And mm, now, yeah. like you say, he's in the mix. You know, he saw the ghost in in Rogue One. So yes. you know, there's the potential. He saw him, General yeah, Sindhu on, on the, the microphone. Yeah, yeah. Saw Guerrero. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. So there's all these options that they can do it and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why not throw them oh, all in? Yeah. Carcatan, bring back me some Carcatan. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, like, as, as happy as I as I am that they brought back Thrawn, yeah. one of the things I'm happy happiest about is that the fact that they brought in the Tide Defender. That's, yes. that's a fantastic ship from the expanded universe. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. so glad they brought that in. Yeah. And Fantasy Flight Games are going to start pulling oh, lots of stuff oh, in yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> you've got two X-wing players here. Yes. Ah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. 
This is becoming a problem already. <laughs> it's a serious addiction. If, if somebody was new to Star Wars comics, where would you advise somebody to start? Because if they, if, they if they go into Nostalgia and comics, they're faced with yeah. a massive amount of, of graphic novels and oh, yeah. single shorts and whatever. So where, where would you say is the ideal jumping on spot for somebody who's never experienced Star Wars and comics? That's a cracking question. Before, I would have just said piling at the very start with A New Hope and, and work your way through the Marvel run. But now, like you say, we're in this canon era. I suppose I would say start with issue one of the new run of the Marvel titles and, yeah. and run it from there because they do Vader and Star Wars run parallel and then all mm. the miniseries fold in but my old my old heart says you know I'd go back to the original you know, the Roy Thomas and yeah. Howard Chaykin stuff and, and start there and work through it I know yeah. some beautiful stuff that has unfortunately been cast out into the ether I think a little bit I mean Legends is probably a good title for it now mm. yeah. It yeah. Yeah. Legends. Yeah. and that worked actually quite well with Force Awakens when they mentioned about how you had Ray talking yeah. to Han Solo about the Force and Luke Skywalker and how it was all a big myth, yeah. and then like yeah. Han says, it's all true. And it's funny, you know, because you make a good point because we look at that and Force Awakens is thirty-two years after, you know, after Jedi and Phantom yeah. Menace is thirty-two years before. Don't want Lucas to go about thirty-two, but <laughs> but you know, all these things. It's a it's a massive galaxy, and and we think as an, as a viewer yeah. that everybody in the galaxy knows about the Jedi, and everybody in the galaxy would, yeah. would have met, but they're not. They're they're yeah. mytholo- mythological in that there's probably planets in the inhabited planets in the galaxy that Jedi never even got to yeah. Yeah. so for them to be forgotten so quickly maybe isn't such a crazy concept you look at the guys it's only a generation before why are they treating yeah. them like it's King Arthur In but it kind of makes sense in that yeah. respect so it worked well in Force Awakens yeah, I was going to say you can imagine the Galactic News Network to Tatooine's probably a few years out of date for the time yeah. Yeah. we have modern parallels there's plenty of things that my kids don't have no idea about that were cultural touchstones for me when I was younger and there are some that have been eradicated from the popular memory for one reason or another but yeah I don't think it's a difficult yeah. thing to kind of think that no, people aren't going to no, that's a good point actually yeah. you, know, you say certain TV shows that you know that were big in the seventies that kids now would never have heard yeah, of. Yeah. Why would they? Cassette yeah. tapes, VHS. A lot of kids nowadays yeah, don't even know what that is. Yeah, there's yeah. all sorts of stuff in there. Yeah. What was your opinion on Rogue One? Oh, I have loved you? it. Considering mm. we were just talking outside, yeah. considering it had a really tricky birth. I mean, Gareth yeah. Edwards made the film. From what I understand, the film was made. They took it to the BBFC. They yeah. gave it a 15. And Disney freaked. And I like, can't release a 15 stick of a Star Wars film. Because yeah. they said to Gareth Edwards, go and make yeah. a, the Star Wars version of Saving Private Ryan. Mm. And he did. Yeah. Uh, and then Disney sort of thought, hang on, we've kind of Because that's a, what slight... a lot of people were confused. Because the yeah. stuff in the trailer that you never saw gone. Yeah. Disappeared yeah. the trailer. It's like, yeah. where's that gone? And then yeah. they bring in Tony Gilroy to do a bunch of reshoots. And yeah. Edwards is completely on board there was no fracture like there has been with the Lord and Miller situation but you yeah. know so everybody worked together I loved it I thought it was fantastic I think it was such a ballsy move to actually stick to what they wanted to do yeah. and what they planned and actually pretty much kill everybody off yeah. it made sense otherwise yeah. those people would have been like mega heroes of the, of the rebellion yeah, exactly, yeah. you would have known of them in Empire and Jedi so it yeah. made all the sense it's the way it ends as well that it's like this is just a small part of a bigger story yes. because it just, it just goes yeah. here's the story of these characters and we're off yeah. with, with what happens in yeah. New Hope and it's yeah. like there's no stopping that's happened we, we, we now enter another phase and yes. it was great to see bits behind the Rebel Alliance which Souls Rebels itself yeah. has built on with these different cells operating completely independently yeah, no idea about what the others are up to yeah. at any one time and probably the only person who knows what's going on is Mon Mothra because she's like collating yeah. this all together and mm. sending people off on missions yeah. Yeah. and it's a brilliant way to see it and they set some great characters up you know you want to see more of Cassian and K2SO no doubt you know, you, oh, you, oh K2SO is my new favourite 
very well. It's yeah. HK47 for a modern generation is what the way <laughs> yeah. I'd describe yeah, 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 yeah. it. It yeah. seems to have lost the word meatbag along the way, but it's just a HK <laughs> unit that's ended yeah. up in a K2 unit, I think. It is a good time for, for, for us to be Star Wars fans. You yes. know, the fact that we have got the comics, we have got the novels, we have got the films, whereas yeah. before we were a bit adrift and it was you know a, a comic series here a, a novel there yeah. it's like now you can you you're immersed in a, in a world of a hundred different stories so i think it's a good time to be a star wars fan it certainly is i think especially for kids these days who who like their media to come at them hard and fast yeah, yeah i think for, for older fans it was nice to have a film every three years because you got that time to chew it over yeah. and a couple of novels and, and like you said the comics and such so you could absorb it a bit more but yeah. now it's coming at you a bit mm. faster but i ain't getting any younger so bring it on it's become <laughs> it's become the big christmas event and yeah, i think a yeah, lot yeah. of people are looking forward to whatever yeah. comes out Star Wars related every Christmas now yeah. we've had Force Awakens I mean that was a really curious decision when we heard about those moving it from the summer blockbuster season right through to Christmas yeah. but it was absolutely brilliant to see that awesome yeah oh, awesome and they did and, and what they've done as well and they've kind of picked up off other other franchises that yeah. really Lord of the Rings was the one that really made it a Christmas event every year you had yeah. those three films and then Potter started to, I know Potter alternated between yeah. summer and winter but most of them were the winter Bond yeah. now tends to come out of the winter yeah. you know Star Wars has now got that Lot now down, and I hope they stay. I mean, yeah. it sounds yeah. like the solo movie will still be coming out May next Fingers year. Fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd rather see it in December to be perfectly yeah, honest. I'm, de- I'm definitely like I'd rather see these movies every Christmas. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's become a family event. Yeah, definitely. And it's and it's, d- and it's a it's a massive crunch as well. I know they've got different crews working on the films at the same time. Each film still takes two or three years to make. It's just that there's there's different crews making them at, at a you know on, on a yeah. rotor. Yeah. But but you know you still got the merchandise. It goes into deep discount before the yeah. next film is out so that's turning over like crazy but to- and it's great also to see a bit of the British film industry in here so most Rogue One was filmed at Pinewood Studios it's, yeah. it's great to see a British focusing I mean it worked really well with Rogue One because it yeah. called back to that original New Hope styling where it was yeah. filmed over here quite a lot and it's got a lot of British character actors in there and it's nice to see that that's still coming well, through. Well, in essence, for me, Star Wars has always been a British film. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I've got plenty of American friends who hate me saying that. <laughs> when we say it on the podcast, you know, well, the spiritual home of Star Wars. It's, it's you know. just the, the stars and the director is American, but after that, it's like it's made here. Yeah, yeah. Star Cruise, it's like, you know. Darth Vader is from Dorset. <laughs> <laughs> They're off my Death Star. You're a part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. <laughs> That was uncanny. There's a brilliant clip on YouTube and it keeps getting taken down time after time again and it pops up quite occasionally, which is David Prowse's original voice work on Star Wars. I think it was on like a special edition once in a blue moon on a laser disc. But if you ever get a chance to see it, watch it because it makes Star Wars into a comedy quite quickly. And I do love Dave Prowse so much, but I'm so glad they brought James Earl Jones in. To be fair, like from rumours abound that um, this is his last year on the on the convention yeah. circuit. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's, it's one of the things. It'll be a shame to yeah. see, to see him sort of not 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 see him at events anymore. But I think he's he's done his time. Oh, he's, yeah. He served the South yeah. fandom greatly. Yes. So. so if you want anything signed, get it to now. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and thank you for stealing your time oh it's my pleasure <laughs> and where can we find you online you can find Jedi News at www.jedinews.co.uk and you can find me on Twitter at Jedi News 2010 but we're out there on Instagram Jedi News UK Facebook <laughs> Jedi News UK and Radio 1138 which you will find on the uh, Jedi News website as well that's brilliant and we'll have to drag you in again at some point for Love a full length interview thank you very much thank you we're joined by the wonderful Giuseppa. Hello, welcome. Hi. Welcome to Keeper Room. And you're a comic creator, I believe. I am, yes. So do you want to explain about your comic, why you're here today? I have 
been doing comics for some years now, and I'm here with my uh, horror series, Soul Snatchers. Horror? That's oh. an interesting genre we don't often see. Really <laughs> yeah. Often. It's, yeah, it's a kind of horror slash crime slash black comedy. Basically, when you sell your soul to the devil, these guys are the debt collectors. Oh, that's that sounds amazing. really cool. Actually. Yeah. So they are the protagonists. <laughs> You had to describe it, what would be your influence for this comic book? Quite a few. I did go through a big manga phase. I still like it a lot. I'm also quite a bit inspired by artists like Jonah Vasquez. Oh. Mm. There's also a tiny bit of Disney influence in there as well. So you say manga, anime. Any particular favourites? Because I'm imagining probably a bit of Death Note, a little bit of Bleach. Not not the Shonen Jump stuff as much. I do really like Death Note, though. I'm also, at the moment, reading uh, Tokyo Ghoul and Attack on Titan. Attack on Titan. What a beautiful series. Nice to see it in an anime form, but the books are. Yep. Just finished re-watching Cowboy Bebop as well. Oh, there's nothing sadder than the last episode. Except for Cowboy Bebop the movie, which just wrenches your heart and throws it to the floor. I've not not seen the movie, but so... uh... Uh, do, do I have to be prepared for fields? Giant box of tissues, giant box of chocolates. You'll be all right. You can get through. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Going back to your own comic book. Sounds a really interesting concept. How did you come up with the concept? It was quite interesting, actually. Uh, when I was at uni, we were doing creative methods module. So try trying different ways to come up with new ideas. And one of mine ended up being the question, what if you really could buy everything on eBay? And uh, the, uh, <laughs> the topic of hell and souls came up with what, what you could sell on there. So I... Uh, I came up with this idea of uh, hell having different departments at different levels. Oh, brilliant. So going back to a little bit of Dante's Inferno kind of style. Yeah. You just imagine the customer service department of hell. <laughs> I suppose in, I'm probably going to guess you've read Terry Pratchett's Eric book. I haven't, no. I've, I've got a long list of Terry oh, Pratchett to catch up with. You definitely read it because yeah. it has the different levels of hell and they're all different bureaucracies. So nice. it's like, yeah. <laughs> there's forms to fill in to move between different levels of hell <laughs> and there's like certain levels of demon which you aren't allowed to do. It's an absolutely brilliant book, I really recommend No, it. I really should do. So you've got these deck collectors from hell here to yeah. collect souls. So is it looking at each different case? Is it each comic per case or is it more of a, uh, it's, just a general... It's an ongoing story with a little bit of that in it. So, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a main character and you're following his story throughout but you've also got bits on the side okay. like people they're going after yeah, other demons like, that are causing trouble yeah, um, so, so like monster of the week esque so yeah is this your first issue i've got three issues out at the minute mm-hmm. um i'm currently writing issue four due for a 2017 release or uh, i'm hoping so it's yeah. uh, it's quite a bit of an issue of time and money at the minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so being obviously, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Over is a lot of effort to try and mm. put into it. It is. Work. It's really rewarding when I actually get mm-hmm. finished with something and then have it printed and it's just yeah. in your hands. Like, like the fir- the first issue was just. <sighs> <laughs> That's when you'd like hand a signed copy to all the friends and family yeah. and go, I made this. <laughs> that must be actually beautiful. I mean, going from a soul creator, how did you find it was quite hard to get into the industry? It's something I've always wanted to do, whether as a main job or as a side thing. And what actually happened was 11 years ago, I got accepted to the strip search scheme, which uh, which was run by Hiatus. So yeah, I was the, I was in the, the 2006 group. Oh, and, so just 11 um, years ago today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm showing my age now. The pilot issue of Soul Snatchers came out from that. So a few years later, I I did a reboot, and that's what the series is now. What would your advice be to somebody who's just wanted to start off into the industry? First of all, the obvious one, just make comics. Draw, write, mm-hmm. self-publish. Don't be afraid to go to shows. Don't be afraid to start off big either. My first show was a London MCM, and oh, right. it was no regrets Going about that at all. Going the deep end, then straight, yeah. feet straight first, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, the, you know, the table's worth forty pounds at that point. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, slightly more expensive. But yeah, it? it was so worth it. And have you noticed there's been a big rise in comic festivals and the comic? Yeah, they, I mean, people are kind of worried about there being a glut of them, but at the same time, you're having shows in areas where there typically wouldn't be one around for miles. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's also getting new people to go to go to them. Yeah, and it's been it's brilliant. I mean, yeah. we're here at Millennium, well, next door to Millennium Point, so Parkside Media House. It's great to see some children. Yeah, coming so around. Yeah. It, it is a bit of a double-edged sword where you've yeah. got multiple shows on the same weekend, but I think yeah. at, at the moment it's doing more good than, yeah. Uh, yeah. than not. I mean, it's great. I mean, it's brilliant for us. I mean, we're Geek Theme Radio, so it gives us a chance to get access to people yeah. that wouldn't normally be in the area. So yeah. we have quite a thriving comic scene in Birmingham, but we have a thriving comic scene across the UK, and it's brilliant to see yeah. creators come into Birmingham, spread the word a little bit more, especially yeah. on the small press scene. Small press is one of the big things we love. We love small press day. Small press we is good. We love Nostalgia and Comics, and they always have a big event for yeah. Press Day which yeah. we always try and get down to and it's brilliant to see and expose people to the wide variety of comics that's not just Marvel not just DC mm. even Vertigo and Image who are there I'd say probably people probably call them the B-list of comic creators yes. you have like Marvel and DC you'll always be your A-list and then you've got this other rank but people don't realise such diversity underneath it and there as is, yourself having is, a horror yeah. comic you don't see those no. in the main screen press it's always superheroes it's nice to see something different coming through what's your feeling on that kind of thing you, is it nice to see you on the rack next to Marvel and DC. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's also kind of worrying at the same time because <laughs> you're just going, oh. Yeah. It's, uh, I think sometimes it, it can be tricky to draw people away from the big two. It's, it, you know, it's just creating familiarity really isn't it yeah. you know, people are you know, understandably concerned about Contents, go, yeah. going for something without any information about it yeah uh-huh. but I think that's another reason go to your local comic book store yeah. ask the people there behind the till they have the experience they have the knowledge yeah. ask them I like this series it, what do you yeah. think I should yeah. also and read it, it does come back to the to the issue of being a sole creator where you know you don't yeah. you don't necessarily have the time and money to, to put something out regularly yeah, yeah. yeah you, you've only, there's only so many, so many hours in the day to actually mm. get all that sort of stuff done. Where can we find more information about yourself online? I have a website which is www.ryudza.co.uk so R-Y-U-U-Z-A It's got links to my Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr on there. I also have a a Patreon account. That's patreon.com forward slash Ryudza. Thank you very much. Thanks Thanks very much. We're joined by the amazing Tony Cooper, who we spoke to before Birmingham Comics Festival last year, was it? Uh, it was Small Press Day. Small Press Day. Like I, think it was both, actually, wasn't it? I think we speak to Tony at most events. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but just... Whether we actually managed to grab him to get an interview. We <laughs> yeah. certainly spoke to him at um, Small Press Day last yes. year. So it's very fortuitous that you're here today because you're launching your new Kickstarter for the Murder Club. That's correct, yes. I mean, I've, I published a comic last year, some kind of hero mm-hmm. superhero comic that was yes. started as well. Um, and soon after I completed that... I thought, I'm never going to do another comic again. Far too much hard work. <laughs> and I instantly thought of another idea for yes. a comic, but this time for something much much bigger. And yeah. The Murder Club, it's a graphic novel about these two teenage kids uh, sitting in the Ray levels, but they're both psychopaths. And one of them has the idea to try and commit murders, but then cover them up by framing other people. So he tries to recruit Lisa, who's yes. this, like, uh, they're both very bright kids. Yeah. But she's a very quiet one, does a lot, mostly studies on her own. And he tries to convince her to join him to try and get away with murder. As 
a sole creator, so you both write, draw, ink, everything is all in yourself. Do you find it quite an intensive process? I mean, I'm assuming so after the last time where you said never again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is, it is very intensive, but I enjoy it. I mean, I started off writing novels, but I was always, always had an image of the scene in my head when I was writing, when I was writing mm-hmm. and then I was translating it to prose. But for comics, it's a much more organic process. Yeah. So I start off with a script, the outline, I like stuff about 75% of the way through. It's like, I don't need to write anymore, I already know what I want. Yeah. So then I start outlining and it just like bounces back and forth between the art and the writing it's mm-hmm. I, I like that process I find it quite enjoyable probably quite a cathartic process to get your idea out of probably a book which you're more traditionally used to when, and then scoping the environment in your head and drawing it how you see the, one, the environment you want it to be exactly yeah I mean, do you find it's a completely different creative process between a novel and a comic it is It is quite different I mean I outline them both the same way so I outline a book chapter by chapter yeah. and I outline a comic book page by page for for the novel it's, it's essentially a single process quite linear even though I jump between chapters Sometimes yeah. it's just like writing forwards the whole time, essentially translating what's in my head. Because with the book, it's very tell, and with the comics, it's very show. So exactly. it's kind of yeah. I don't, don't of need to translate it as much for the yeah. comic because I already know what I want, and it's a visual image anyway. So it's mm-hmm. it's, it's yes, it's quite a different process. I've been looking for a quick preview of the Murder Club, and um, you've chosen to do this one in black and white instead of color, like your previous book, yeah. which I think suits the tone of the content. Was was that a conscious decision, or was it a more kind of to, to make it a bit quicker for you to actually get through the creative process it was a bit of both actually um, because the some kind of hero took about eight months to do and that was just 24 page full colour so yeah. I thought well if I'm going to do a graphic novel full colour that's going to do like three years just to do one graphic novel so part of part of it was speed just to try and yeah. you know, black and white be faster but also it, I wanted to try and get some of that slight sort of manga feel because they mm. have that you know there's a lot more of these kind of like psychological dramas and things yeah. in manga than like yeah. um, like British Western independent comics so I wanted to capture some of that feeling as well and you find black and white's a lot more visceral as well because yeah. restricting your colour palette I mean we've seen even the theatre cinemas starting to replicate that we've had Logan come out recently in a black and white version yeah you There's want the John Wickin black and black white. And white. <laughs> but this, I mean, as a as a as a kid who grew up with British comics, even the Marvel stuff when I first saw that was was in black and white. There wasn't wasn't color. But there's there's something about storytelling in black and white. It does it draws you into the story a little bit more mm. intensely. That you're there. There's nothing between you and the art, and nothing between you and the story. The colors aren't getting in the way, which is is quite nice. And I think the tone of the Murder Club as well really sets suits that kind of slightly noirish look. It's all about black and whites and shadows and stuff. So that's, yeah. I think it's yeah. although it was a time constraint. I think it's it adds another element yeah, to the to the story. Just, it's, mir- just the the color palette mil- mirrors the script almost. I mean, I enjoy working color. It's it's great fun. But yeah, the black and white is very different. I mean, you can do much more striking images, yeah. contrasts because because it, it likes the limited palette. How do you get your inspiration for something like this? Well, I'm I'm not one of those people that believes in like ideas arriving as a bolt out of the blue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's. That's how they do come to me. I just get yeah. a line, like a tagline, or just get a single idea. Yeah. But I, but I know how it how it comes. It's it's a mash of all sorts of ideas and and things and threads, things I've seen, things I've read throughout my entire life, and maybe something I saw the last week just suddenly triggers something. Yeah. And, I'd, I'd, and something just like coalesces from all these ideas. Think, oh, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just write it down and I just leave it to stew for a few months. And if it's still there after a few months, I know, I know it's a good idea. And then yeah. I'll sort of move yeah. forward with that. So if you, if you were to give any advice to anybody who wants to start in the industry, what would be your top three tips? Don't copy anyone else. I mean, yeah, if you're doing artwork and you want to learn how to do artwork, obviously it's... Yeah, tracing is like, easy yeah, way tracing to Yeah, tracing and, and, and trying doing it freehand and stuff like that. But I wouldn't say don't try and just ape another style. Mm-hmm. Uh, try and 
try and do, do your own style. Yeah. For me personally, um, I also I'm also interested in stories that you haven't necessarily seen in comics or not so much in Western comics. Like yeah. say in manga, you get lots of these dark psychological horror stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, not so much in, in in the West. So trying for me is about trying to find something different, something yeah. that I wanted to read in yeah. comics. And third tip, um, I don't know, lots of tea. And, Chocolates keep you going. <laughs> Brain fuel. Yes. Exactly. People need tea. It's, yeah. it's, I think it's like a medical requirement when you're yeah, bored. So, so you get tea intake. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Important part of the creative process. Yes. So you're funding this one through Kickstarter. Yeah. So how can people get involved and um, contribute to, to getting this uh, book to in their hands? Fruition. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the book already exists. I've got a proof copy. So mm-hmm. it basically all the art's finished. Yeah. And I've got it's just a case of doing a few edits and then it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kickstarter, it's for £900 in total. Mm-hmm. That's for like printing 200 copies worth. And obviously, yeah. if you pledge for a physical copy, which yeah. starts at £8, the minimum pledge for that, you'll get a copy sent to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you just go on to kickstarter.com and search for either Tony Cooper or search for the Murder Club, it, mm-hmm. it'll come right up there in the comic section. And why Kickstarter as a funding method? Because you've got Patreon out there, which is more of a regular payment towards artists. You've got Indiegogo. Why was Kickstarter your personal preference? Um, well, because I used it before on the first comic, so I'm, I'm sort of used yeah. to it. I've already got a bit of an audience there. For me, it's I think it's, cause it's the biggest site. It's like in the way that you always have to get your product on Amazon because yeah. it's the biggest site. Yeah. Or like you have to get your indie game on Steam because it's, it's, it's the main yeah. platform. Yeah. I think that's the main way. Yeah, I, also, I, I, just, I just like it. It's, yeah. it's become very popular with in the indie comic scene. It's how it's led to an explosion of indie comics now. So it's, there's already a lot of people who go on there and, just for indie comics. And it's great to see this relationship where you can have it directly with the creator and the audience, whereas most, most of those traditional publishing, you've got the publisher in between who manages that relationship and you don't really get that much access. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you get a lot more yeah. involvement. I mean, do you ask your Kickstarters what perks they want to see and how to uh, how to enhance their Kickstarter package? What would you like to see? Do you want some art or something like that? And it's nice to see that you can engage with the audience. Do you feel that's a much better way of creating rather than a traditional kind of publisher style? It is definitely, yeah, much more contact. And I had a preview up for a few weeks as well when I went like the back of my previous comic and went online on Twitter saying, hey, you'll have a look at the preview, see what you think. Yeah. And, and I did like change some of my pledge levels based on feedback and, yeah. and stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really great to get that, that feedback and that interaction and see, see what interests people as well. And where can we find you online? You can find my blog at hungryblackbird.com. Mm-hmm. Or you can find the comics website at themurderclub.com. And all your previous works on Amazon? I yep, they're on Amazon as well. And so just type in Tony Cooper? Yep, the previous comics on Comixology as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've actually grabbed a resident of Parkside Media House into the room. Michael Smith, VR ex- extraordinaire, expert. Um, Everything else under the sun? Yeah, I think most people kind of refer to me as Mr. VR, which is a, a bit weird, but yeah. <laughs> so tell us what you do. Um, so yeah, I, I'm actually, uh, I've literally just graduated from BCU. I'm staying for a master's um, to carry on my research into 360 degree and VR applications for the newsroom, uh, looking specifically at journalism and its implementation in the media. Um, but I usually I'm running around this building doing loads of work for marketing, uh, different faculties and stuff. So it's quite nice that there's so much things going on like the, the comics festival today that I can get involved with and actually practice those techniques that I've been experimenting with in VR and 360 to actually get involved and do these mm-hmm. kinds of things. VR seems to be 
a tad bit of a buzzword the last year, year or two. Uh, how would you describe the development? Uh, you've got the Oculus Rift now, we've got HTC Vive, which is now the new Steam box, pretty much. And then you've got PlayStation VR. I mean, does it seem to be this is the technology starting to get somewhere? It's an interesting one, because I always have discussions about this, this concept of, like, 2016 was the year of VR, and yeah. it never quite happened. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's because it wasn't prominent and it wasn't growing. I think it's um, it's down to things like supply uh, of the actual equipment. For example, most people consider things like PlayStation VR to be not particularly great in, in terms of success, but it's actually sold over a million. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the problem is they can't sell more because they can't manufacture them quick enough to get out there. But it's actually kind of worked that the year of VR... Um, which was 2016, has now kind of been pushing into 2017 because it now means they've got more time to develop the AAA content. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned the, the three key ones there, Oculus, um, Vive, and PlayStation VR, and we haven't even considered things like Google Daydream yet. Or um, Google Go- Google Cardboard, sorry. Yeah, Google Cardboard, um, Samsung Gear, which is doing phenomenal. Um, and then probably towards the second half of the, the, this year we've got a whole slew of headsets that are coming across from China that you know are pushing things like 4K displays in the in, yeah. in the eyes so it, it's an interesting time I actually genuinely believe this this year might actually be the year for, for VR probably 2017 2017 the new yeah. year of VR yes VR 2.0 yeah I, I think I think that's actually the, the perfect explanation of it VR 2, 2.0 because I think the other thing as well is that creators are now getting on board with it, yeah. Um, and you're starting to see more and more content ramp up. Uh, YouTube just announced the other day that they're doing a whole new film scheme, uh, specifically for 360 degree uh, video and VR. You've got the Knight Foundation who are giving out grants left, right, and centre for 360 degree. Are they doing autonomous vehicles as well? Please don't. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, sadly not. Um, but there's all these kinds of projects that are going on that's really interesting and you know this kind of tied into some of the, the research that we're doing and we're yeah. slowly starting to see some of it creep in with things like CNN getting involved with VR, uh, the New York Times, mm-hmm. um, Frontline, we're starting to see more of it but I, I still feel like we're kind of struggling a little bit to, to normalise the technology yeah. because we haven't had the BBC, for example, do regular um, yeah content it's it's experimental and that's kind of worrying it seems to be always elections is like their launching point for technology you'll see jeremy fine on a big screen big green screen playing around with the swingometer and stuff like that we don't see it as you said in the news as much and it's probably i'd expect more from the bbc actually because they're usually pretty good at keeping up with modern technology i mean they did a binaural episode of doctor who a few weeks back which is pretty much audio vr which is experimenting with how sounds sounds with headphones in your ears placing audio in Dave Mr. Bramau Massey you listened to that episode through headphones and you really enjoyed it I did yes yeah and that's the other thing VR is not just eyesight which people seem to forget VR is a complete virtual reality experience it's it's not just yet it's ears as well as eyes and even smell and touch and taste and we start to see that come through a little bit in technology it's interesting you pick up on the multi-sensory aspect because actually um Somebody who's joining the, the university actually is a, is a specialist in that, Sarah Jones. Um, she's just recently done a talk at the, the launch of the VR AR Association Birmingham chapter, and she yeah. deals with multisensory films that, that you know immerse yourself. So you put the headset on, but then you get the smell mm-hmm. um, and the kind of sounds and all that kind of yeah. that that cool stuff. But I think 
that's probably where we're going long term. I think those kind of experiences are going to be great where you can go into somewhere like Boring, pay 10 quid, yeah. half an hour experiences. But what we've got to kind of look at is removing the complexities of all these kind of things and giving people the basic experiences for it to become the norm. So you guys te- you know, tested out our experiment that we kind of did with New Reality Network where you know, the aim of that was to take something as simple as a news program five to six minutes long, continue with the same production process as you would do in a normal newsroom, but yeah. slightly tweak it in the sense that we would use new cameras. And, mm-hmm. and we wanted to gauge what people's reactions would be from that and whether that meant people connect with the stories better, whether they get more experience and stuff. And it was interesting yeah. to kind of gauge your reactions. I mean, you guys probably tell more about how you felt being in that kind of news studio more than I can. So we were trying on the HTC Vive headset. We were pretty much in a similar kind of situation where we are now. A couple of people talking into microphones, recording a news bulletin, and you were dropped in with a 360 camera and popped into the studio. I mean, and there's other really careful little touches, like there was virtual furniture in there, there was banners popping up, um, hashtags and tweets, I think, as well, yeah. would like being displayed above the presenters. Yeah. And it was a really interesting experience. I mean, Dave, you really enjoyed that. We were had the opportunity to uh, try on the VR headset, l- listen to the sounds of what was going on in, in that virtual studio, and having that virtual studio around and just being able to turn your head to see what was on different screens, looking behind you, um, seeing items uh, and news stories being presented in a real immersive way uh, was really great. And you know, it, it's that opportunity to see how that can be harnessed in the future that's just tremendous uh, for us, I think. And it's interesting for us as producers and creators of this content is because. We, we, we've had to go through all the complex issues with the technology being so new and break it down to make it more simplified so that anyone can come in and do this kind of stuff. So, you know, um, journalism, for example, as an industry is, is changing in the way that it engages with its audience. You know, video is the new buzzword and everybody's using video, but we're already at that point where technology's already moved past that and so what I anticipate is people are going to struggle to create these kind of cool experiences so that's obviously going to be quite a difficult challenge and this is why we kind of wanted to 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 break that down so it's ready for people now to kind of start doing experiments and hopefully hopefully it'll become the norm because all that complex stuff all that programming that you'd have to learn because I'm not a programmer I hate programming but I know how to film a video so, like, how can I make that accessible for all kinds of people to just literally pick up a camera, understand the, the concepts of narratives, how it's going to be displayed on, on a high-end device, and then just go off and do it? Yeah, and that's something else we see as well. A lot of people are moving away from traditional media formats. The traditional printed press is quieter and quieter, as we see every year. Even the television started to be a bit old hat. People are consuming more information through their mobile phone or through a tablet than ever before. And it's kind of this little, tiny little world. And the bigger you can make that world by using something like Google Cardboard or Samsung Gear VR, and then immersing them in a bigger experience rather than just a tiny little screen, the better it must be as an experience for your end user. Yeah, and I think it's important for the stories themselves as well. I mean, we, we, we kind of live in a, a day and age where, strangely enough, the sun still sells millions of copies every day, whether you agree with it or not. But there's still a disconnect with the actual content that people might get angry, they might go have discussions with it. Don't get that with, say, like social media or, or TV or something. If something's disturbing or thought-provoking, you you know, makes you uncomfortable, you automatically flip over the channel. And the best, the best way I always can explain it is like, for example, when you see uh, a video for a charity, for example, you know you have the kind of format of video where it's kind of telling that, that story. And if it makes you feel uncomfortable, 
you, you have that emotional disconnect. You're not connected to the story of what's being trying to be said. So then you flip over the channel, you go to do something else. This technology, you can't do that. You're, you're actually seeing it through people's eyes. And I think that's such an important thing when we live in a day and age of fake news and all this kind of stuff. There's actually a real authenticity to actually producing content, especially with 360 degree and VR. Now, the question that, that, that faces us potentially as, as long-term workers in this field, field is two things, ethics and how much do we do in terms of immersiveness? Because if we start augmenting everything within a 360 degree video, it might actually lose its meaning and that emotional connect. And, you know, nobody's actually managed to get that right balance yet, which is interesting. I suppose the thing with a 360 video is you cannot hide. Yeah. That that's pretty much the biggest issue, biggest issue and its biggest advantage at the same time. It's it's not like you've got a traditional video recording. You have your videographer, you have your sound recorder. You've probably got a mixer person in the background. You're gonna have a director, you'll have a producer all behind the camera, which you'll never see. But the 360 video, it's you. It's yeah. you there. It's your eyesight. It's what you can see and what you can deliver. And you don't need those people there because it's it's your personal viewpoint. Do you think it'll be a lot more like in war journalism, stuff like that, which is probably where it might be more beneficial. It can actually put people... And it might be disturbing for people. It might be quite harrowing to see that. But at the end of the day, it's the only way people can experience it without going into the danger themselves and understanding and probably having a much better view and relationship with something like that. And I think that's part of the problem with it being not a normalised technology because we're, uh, you know, with it not being normal, we're not having these discussions of how far do we push it ethically, you know. Do we go out and film in a war zone where somebody might act, you know, might get killed? You, you know, that that's not something you can take out of that video with great ease. It's going to be extremely difficult and we've got to remember that, you know, I've often spoken with VR specialists in the field, you know, that have got companies and various companies that do different things, and they often say that this is one of the probably one of the most dangerous entertainment technologies we've ever had, because there is that psychological element. You know, the best example is if you're trying VR out and you go on one of these like walk along a planks and then you fall, like your body will drop, you'll feel it, even though you know it's not real. And then when we talk about 360 degree video, we're actually filming something that's real. Yeah. So it's we're not having these conversations yet, which is actually quite disturbing because on the one hand, it means yes, you've got freedom to experiment and do all these kinds of things and, and decide how far you you know push the boundaries. But on the other hand, it's like, this is something that can actually really do damage. And this is, this is what we had to be careful of when we were filming all these kinds of things. We had to be aware of the fact that we don't actually want to do any damage to people and psychologically. Yeah, and that's another thing is the person who's filming it, they can only see what's in front of them. They can't see what's going on behind them. It might be stuff that, they said, if it's in a war zone and you're focused in one direction, stuff like that might be happening behind you, which you don't even have a clue about until you watch back the footage. And as I said, that must be a really complicated editing process because you're not just looking at one screen. You've got to look at your entire view start to finish. Yeah, um, it's actually not as difficult as it might sound I think that when you when you start editing it's like anything though it's it's getting used to the process and I think the biggest hurdle with 360 degree video and VR is that that change from thinking of things as 2D and flat or peripheral vision of 180 degrees you you sort of start thinking in spherical terms yeah. so everything that you see is a sphere um, and <laughs> once you kind of master that it, it, it becomes a lot easier but then again it, you're still going to face the same issues you would do if you were editing it normally in the sense of I mean you can't really block out an angle no. 
I mean, you got to show the whole thing on. Yeah, and again, it comes back to that thing of how much do you augment it? Because, yeah. it, uh, and we are, it's worth pointing out, we're actually talking about post-production here. Yeah. Having gone out and filmed and, and done all this stuff, we haven't even considered the live element. Yeah. Um, with Facebook Live, YouTube 360 Live, you know, the, these platforms actually support it. So again, it comes back to this issue that if everybody become, if it becomes the norm and BBC start to take broadcasting on their, their social media channels and doing it in 360 and they go out to wars, it's like, how do you interrupt that broadcast? Because it's not the same way you would do it as yeah. normal media. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And that's where the difficulties are going to lie. But it requires people to actually get involved and experiment with these things so that we can actually have these discussions. For me, one of the one of the things is, is you talk about it as an experience and it, it, where does it fit in our engagement with various media because you would you would see something that's 360 you can't control where somebody's looking people how do people learn how to create narratives that f that get people to look where they need to look to continue the story because if you're in an experience most of the things that i've seen as vr are they're gamified so you kind of you've got time and you get to explore and you're driven to a particular point but if you're telling a story or a narrative um, how do you when, when does when do those people who are telling those kind of stories then start to talk to the people who are doing the technology part it is quite an interesting I don't think there's a, a direct answer for that uh, as such um, you know a lot of the, the content you'll see that isn't gamified doesn't really have a narrative as such um, it's kind of left to the audience to kind of explore and, and that's all well and good but you're right in the sense that the narrative is going to become more and more important if people want to engage with it. There's no right or wrong answer as to how people do that. There's, there's various techniques you can use. So, for example, you can deliberately make it sound like the audio is coming from behind you, which is going to natural, feed into your natural reaction to then turn around and look what's there. There's all, all kinds of things you can do. There's visual cues that you can put in there using graphics you know one thing I, I did toy around with um, and I'm still yet to do it but is if you say for example you walk down Birmingham High Street and you see the normal stores that you would to your left and your right but as you kind of walk past it you could augment that with some kind of graphics just in the corner of your eye that are going to pique your interest that you might not see it the first time but you think to yourself hang on a minute I obviously did miss something I'll go back and watch that um, so there's all kinds of tricks you can use with that but again it comes into that ethical concerns about how much do you post edit is it going to give you the same authenticity as if you just filmed it without a narrative and, and that's kind of where those that are working within the technology are kind of stuck at, at the moment but those that would be able to contribute more to that discussion are not actually involved with it so that's where we kind of we struggle with it so that's why a lot of people refer to the work they do with this sort of stuff as experimental and actually I would argue now we're at a point where it is becoming normal, a normal medium media, but it's just, it's still kind of seen as on the fringes. And how much more are we going to get the kind of cooperative VR? Because most, most VR experiences, most people all have come across are standalone. It's you and you alone. And I've recently seen the uh, Star Trek Bridge Simulator where multiple people, perhaps not even in the same room, are cooperating to engage with a, a virtual environment how much more are we going to see of that multi-person vr it, it's going to be potentially the selling point of vr going forward i think uh, star trek bridge crew is an interesting example because uh, it's done so well and I, I don't think anybody expected it to be such a great cop experience uh, out of the box i mean it was initially delayed from when it was announced and then the fact that it just came out and everybody got on board with it and it, it was great and 
there have been other co-op experiences that have just not kind of worked for, for technical issues and stuff like that. But it is going to become important in the sense that you, you think the things like Facebook Spaces, for example, um, you know, that that's kind of defining VR as a social experience. You know, uh, it takes things like content that I would film on 360 video and then it can be shared with their friends. There's an outside element where you can phone them up on Messenger and they can experience the video even if they're not looking at it through a VR headset. So... Social elements are going to be extremely important to VR going forward, and uh, I've said this probably since you know Facebook had at the FA conferences. It's for, for once we actually get some kind of final definition on, on the technologies itself, in the sense that VR is very much going to become this home-based experience. You know that you'll be able to do the things like online co-op, socialise, do gaming, but even just for normal media consumption. And then on the other side of it, augmented reality, which is I think more about customising the way that you individually see the world as you go out and explore it. And this is really the first kind of time we've had that. So it's going to be interesting, but I definitely think social is going to become so important to to VR. And even um, some people that I've spoken to in, in the industry who are not particularly keen on social, as soon as they try that experience out, that's it, they're sold on it. Thank you very much for joining us today. Where can we find more information about you online? I'm quite an active Twitter user, so Mike underscore... Dante Zero, you'll find all, all the work that I'm on there. If anybody is interested in, in actually building VR and understanding some of the equipment and the basics of getting started, you can go to our, our project website, which is newrealitynetwork.com. Um, and yeah, and you can also find me on Facebook at, at mikesjourno.com because this is something that I'll be experimenting with longer term. So there's plenty of different channels. So I, I would encourage anybody to just you know drop me a message and get in touch if they're interested in that kind of field. And it'd be great to have some discussion and dialogue with them. Brilliant, thanks very much. Perfect, thank you. So we're still at Birmingham Comics Festival here at the uh, Parkside building, just next to Millennium Point. Uh, and we're looking enough now to be joined by a legend of the comics industry, uh, Mr. David Lloyd, the artist behind such great titles as Night Raven, Viva Vendetta, some of the great Hellblazer stories. Uh, so it's a pleasure to meet you, David. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, and it's nice to be here. Thank you. Just tell us a little bit more about your history in comics, how you got kind of got started in the industry. Well, uh, I don't know how long you want me to make that, but what inspired me to do comics was this great strip that I saw when I was about 12 years old called Wrath of the Gods, drawn by a fantastic artist called Ronald Ambleton. And it, it was the first thing I'd seen, the first comic I'd seen, that made me realise that you could do something that was really believable world. Uh, it was like a movie. It was so well drawn, so well realised. And uh, so that really started me off doing them. And then I was doing them through school. When I started training in art proper, when I left school, I was in an advertising art studio. And I used to draw them in the lunch hours and also at home. I wanted to do that for a living. The idea while I was at this advertising studio was to try and sell some newspaper strip ideas. That kind of failed. But, but when that failed, I'd left my job. And then I just tried to get work in strips of any kind after that. And my first big break came really in 77, which is a long time ago now, when I did, I was asked to do the illustrations and strips in a TV annual for Logan's Run. There's a Logan's Run TV series, and they did an annual for it, and I was asked to do the work for that. I'm glad to see that that, that still stands up. That still looks good. So that really gave me a great bunch of samples that I could take around to other publishers, and that's really how my big career began, because those were good samples, and I could take them around and then got work in things like TV, comic, and everything. 
So my career just snowballed, and then I just worked for lots of uh, publishers after that. Because throughout your career, you have worked for a great deal of different publishers. You worked for uh, Warrior, which is probably the first time I came across your work, and then you've worked for uh, you don't work for Marvel, you don't work for DC, some other independent publishers. How have you found the comic industry has now changed? Now we've entered the twenty first century, and we've gone from the more kind of weekly. Uh, easily available on the newsstand comics. How are you finding the industry's changing now we've moved into the 21st century and the digital age? Well, if you're talking about the British industry, which is where the weeklies used to exist, and I don't know whether in 2000 it is not weekly anymore, but in the British industry, it's, uh, it, it's, it never really realised the potential it had. Uh, in the 80s, there were lots of really great uh, British innovative creators like Alan Moore and Pat Mills and lots of great writers and it's where Grant Morrison came from and all those guys and I don't think the British industry really recognized what the the British industry could become and so in terms of the British industry it's not big enough I mean the only really creative comic around now in English terms is 2000 AD really when you think of uh, all the things that happened in America it's well, a lot of the great things that happen in America are because all those British guys who weren't who weren't recognised uh, and were regarded as dispensable in the eighties all went and worked for America. So, uh, in British terms, the industry here has not changed. In the digital age, as you're talking about, I think uh, there's a possibility for a great change because uh, I think. You know, the 21st century in cyberspace gives us an opportunity to take comics out of print into a much wider world. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm doing something called Aces Weekly, which is a completely online comic art magazine. We just go through cyberspace to the readers. We don't go to a big printer and use paper and then put it in boxes and send it around. We just go directly to, to the reader through cyberspace and we have that ability so I think I think um, that hopefully will change things but there you know there are obstacles involved because comic readers unlike any other reader of any other periodical or anything any kind of kind of fiction they they like collecting and they like they want that thing so it's very difficult to to market uh, great strips just through uh, cyberspace, you know, from the cloud. So that's a problem uh, that needs to be overcome. But uh, hopefully that will change and grow. Do you think this gives you a lot more creative freedom by going online? Do you feel like you're more free? You don't have to restrict yourself in print, so you don't have to restrict yourself in length to a certain degree. Uh, The comic can be as free as you want it to be on how you want it produced. Your market always has to determine that. It depends who who you want to reach. I mean, with Aces Weekly, we want as wide a subscription base as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's it's basically it's family friendly. We've got yeah. strong stories of all kinds um, and comedy. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an anthology that's got all kinds of things in it. Yeah. Um, but your 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 market, your who you want to reach, is always going to limit you in terms of the amount of material. Yes, you can do more material because. I mean, we have a very big extras section, which has uh, layouts and scripts and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, the, the construction stuff of the, of the strips that we pr- uh, present. If you were doing that in print, every page is going to cost you more. Yeah. But in digital, you can actually give lots and lots of, lots of more material. So 
you can do more material and also cheaper, of course, because you don't have those cost of print and stuff. And probably higher quality as well with the resolutions you get on the screen now. More quality digital art. I mean, print restricts you on how much DPI you have, how many, how much colours you can put on the page. Do you think digital art is a lot more freeing for the artist to say, this is how I want, this is how my concept was? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the internet is the best form of uh, reproduction and distribution thus far invented, really. So, yes, you're right. We don't have any printing trouble at all because it's, uh, it's all... You know, what you see on screen is, and nothing matches the brilliance, the luminescence of it. It all looks fantastic uh, on screen. So, yeah. But the point about freedom, um, uh, y- yes, but it, you know, always depends on who you want to yeah. reach. If you, if you want to do something uh, that's radical, it does give you the opportunity to do something radical and not cost you a lot of money. Because you're, you don't have to print anything. You just, you know, whatever whatever reader you want to reach, you can tell that story and send it to where you think that reader's going to be, and it's not going to cost you a lot of money. So it does, it does, it does, uh, it does accommodate freedom. Because you've had a, a really eclectic and interesting range of creators work with you for for ACES Weekly. Did you have to approach them and convince them that this was uh, the way to go in terms of kind of digital co- anthology comics, or did you find creators coming to you and going, "I want, I want to be involved"? How did how did you get that kind of diverse range of creators involved? At the beginning, I I mean, luckily I've got a lot of respect in this business, and people know me, and I've got a lot of friends. And uh, at the beginning, I wanted to get as many people who were friends and knew me, and also names, because I figured if somebody has got a fan following in print, then that fan following will just follow them into digital. That didn't actually work out the way I, the way I thought it would, uh, simply because of that problem I mentioned earlier about the fact that comic readers, like, like they want that thing, they want, they want to collect. So that was, that was a, an obstacle that we couldn't climb. But the idea was to use as many names that, that comic readers were familiar with in regular comics. Um, so that's how we started off. Um, now, after we've become established and people know more about us, people come to me and they want to be published. And, and, and it's a, on a global basis, too. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be invited to a lot, uh, to a lot of countries, a lot of trips, largely because of my reputation with V, mainly. When I've done that, I've met lots of artists uh, all over the world, and we have a global cast now. We have people from Argentina, uh, Brazil, Spain, Italy, France, Belgium. All of these guys are actually, and girls, are working for, for Races Weekly, and and the, and what really heartens me most is is that by now everybody knows how tough the market is, what we're trying to do, um, and there's not masses of money to be made yet from what I'm doing, and yet still they want to do it, they want to be on board because they they like the idea that they're pioneering, you know, that they're trying something new, and uh, and one of the other great things about about what I'm doing is this touches on what, what you asked about freedom a moment ago. I do actually have a policy of letting them do what they want to. If you give artists and writers a chance to do what they really want to do, you're going to get the best out of them because they, they've put themselves on the line and they do want to entertain and impress as much as they possibly can. So I say, you know, once I see that they're good and they're doing great work and they want to, they want to do something, you know, if it looks good, any idea they that they come up with, 
I say, okay, let's do it. And uh, because we are an anthology and we have a mix of things, um, we have an extraordinary range of stuff. But of course, I'm not. I'm not crazy. Um, I you know I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm publishing something that I want to reach an audience uh, and be entertained by. You know, as far as I'm concerned, it has to be within sort of certain rules and regulations, and they have to balance the the product. So you know, you just can't have a whole bunch of science fiction stories. You have to have a mix because that's what we are. So I I keep a, a hand on the tiller. But there's still a great deal of freedom, DNA is with me, for all the people involved. And you mentioned earlier you get a chance to work on a global audience, which you probably couldn't do as much with a print magazine. It's restrictive. You've got to get your art in. You've got to get printers. It gives you a chance to collaborate where you wouldn't expect to collaborate normally. Well, uh, as I say, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, we do... People come to me and yeah. they, they want to work with, with Ace Weekly, and that's fine. And... Um, but the point you make about the uh, the lead times and about the yeah. print, that's because digital is so easy to put together. It's just files, just files. And and also, we don't, I mean, most print books need about a lead time of three months or something. Mm-hmm. Because you've got to get the printer involved, you've got to get the printer schedule, you've got to get all warehouse, and you've got to just, you've got to... Colour correction, stuff. warehouse. We, just, yeah, yeah, I mean, we sometimes go, we go live every Monday because we're a weekly. Yeah. A weekly that makes up seven week volumes, but we go live every every Monday night, and we sometimes put the whole thing together on Sunday, and and if 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 artists are late for any reason, yeah, we can slot files in on Monday afternoon. Yeah, it's that easy. I mean, you know, it's just so easy. It's all from a laptop. You, you, we're publishing from a laptop. You don't need all that antiquated stuff, which is time wasting resource wasting and um, if I can just get enough people to recognize that you know what we're giving them in terms of quality material price then we'll be we'll have a, a, a great future have you found as well that the the proliferation of digital creation tools have kind of emboldened the artists to experiment digitally as well because obviously before it was ink and boards and all the rest of it but the fact that now people can Cintiqs, iPad Pros, all the rest of it. Does that has that also given them some more creative freedom in the in the tool set they're using? Some of our artists use uh, Manga Studio and all those all those other sorts of uh, of things. But there's absolutely no need to in Aces Weekly. Aces Weekly is you know the 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 description of it as digital is only about the delivery. It's digital delivery. It doesn't mean I mean you can use traditional uh, methods it doesn't matter that's that's not an, an important element of the of the show we as long as it's as long as the work is is um, is scanned at a suitable resolution 600 or higher it's fine it doesn't matter you can use pen and ink you can use brush you can use regular paint or you can use um, digital uh, production methods it doesn't matter at all so that opens that up to, to any art form any however creative you want to be 
as long as delivery is digital, then yeah, absolutely. you could go. So that expands it in and out. You, you can get a very different mix of looks and styles. And, and I mean, your style itself is very recognizable. It's very much, a, you know, there's a very beautiful shadow and use of light and stuff there. So creatives who are using maybe mixed media or painted artwork or whatever it is. Yeah, so you, can, like, you can use anything. It's just like, I mean, it's just like most comics now. I mean, you know, let's face it. They, they, they can, the conveyor belt concept of the printer of the penciler and the inker and the colorist that all just came from the the old traditional industry of american comics you know they they initiated that system because it got uh, products done you know the, you know you know the marvel and dcs of this world produce piles of stuff when they started doing that they had to get stuff done on the conveyor belt they couldn't you, you couldn't have one artist do everything comics are completely different now it's you don't need to do that anymore. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. Acesweekly.co.uk, you can find all the information on there. But where can we find yourself online? Yeah, my website is www.lforloyd.com, mm-hmm. but uh, it needs updating. But there is some interesting stuff on there, I can tell you. But uh, yeah, please do go to Aces Weekly. That's uh, Yeah, and as you said, delivered every Monday straight to your inbox. Well, you, you subscribe. If you, yeah. you, it comes to you every Monday if you subscribe. But mm-hmm. if you go uh, at the website, you can buy the back volumes. The back volumes can be bought very easily too. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have the wonderful Rich Carrington, creator Hello. of Hardline Comics. Welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. So you're the creator of Hardline Comics. Yeah. Uh, issue 5 just launched today yeah. here at the Comics Festival. And that was from a successful Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, it, um, this is issue five of the guys, my sort of partway between a love letter to, to superhero comics and a Issue five was successfully kickstarted a couple of months ago, so I'm here sort of launching the, the, the print run today. Kickstarter, is that a brilliant way that you find to get your comic out to the audience? I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean. It seems to be something that's going to be more prevalent in the comics industry. Yeah, I think so, especially on the indie scene. Um, it, it's, it's a sort of win win model, really. You sort of. It's, it's a way of reaching a wider audience and you haven't really, I mean obviously marketing is, is part of it but I'm not especially keen on social media, more for laziness than anything else but I sort of avoid Facebook, I avoid Twitter and I'm, yeah. I'm conscious that that's how you, you're supposed to do it to build up an audience but Kickstarter's a way of strangers finding your stuff really. Mm-hmm. The issue 5 Kickstarter, there was people in America, people in Canada, for some reason I've got quite a, quite a readership in Austria. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'll take, I'll take a reader. <laughs> take a, can, take yeah. a reader. Yeah, but it's sort of, you know, if your Kickstarter's not successful, then you've sort of lost nothing apart from your ego takes a bashing. But mm-hmm. it's just a way of covering the print costs yeah. and, and, again, just sort of reaching quite an international audience, really, without any of the, you know, as I say, the sort of social media push and yeah. the marketing side of things. So it, it works for me. All, all my comics have been Kickstarted successfully. So it sort of looks after itself. It pays for the print run which allows me to then come to the, the convention circuit without having to you know, spend hundreds of my own pounds mm-hmm. uh, taking the books to print. You know. You're know, you on issue five now, so yeah. it, it must have been a bit of a snowball of the audience that have followed you all the way through from issue yeah, one. Yeah, there are. Yeah, you do get the, the sort of repeat custom, which is nice because you've then got a, a built-in readership. My first uh, Kickstarter was quite heavily reliant on sort of friends and family a little bit of a sympathy um you know mm-hmm. tipping in kind of thing which is which is nice but i've told friends and family just just don't do it anymore as much as i appreciate the support it's it's nice to reach your target through people who actually just want to read the book rather than my dad. being a bit of a self-sufficient comic yeah comic. yeah yeah so kickstarter um issue five sorry was 
totally funded by sort of strangers and people who've discovered the book uh, and have you know they're pledging because they want to read it which is nice rather than as I say you know your friends just sort of trying to cut you a break really people haven't read the guys before how would you describe it to an audience who haven't read it before utterly hilarious <laughs> yeah it's 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 as I say it's you know I'm a, a massive comic fan a massive superhero fan but then I thought there's no point trying to compete with the big guys there's no point trying to do a straight superhero book so it's a it is a parody of, you know, it's issue five, actually, that is the first issue. They've got costumes. Mm-hmm. So the long, you know, the, the sort of elevator pitch for it is five students get superpowers and they don't really buy into the whole superhero thing. They've got the, there's a load of villains. There's the Prober Robot and Mindo in issue four and issue five's got the shifter. But it, it's it's sort of, it's playing up superhero tropes. It is at the heart of it, a parody. But you, you if you read it, you'll see the love that I've got for superhero books. But it's, again, there's no point in me trying to compete. There's so many superheroes out there. So trying to put a little twist on it, a little bit of a parody, a little bit of a quite sweary, well, it's very sweary. Yeah, at the, at the heart of it, it's a comedy. It's, it's a sort of, I love comics. This is the kind of thing I'd like to read. Um, and it seems to be going down quite well. Small press scene seems to be having a bit of a resurgence, especially yeah. in the UK at the minute. Do you, do you feel like this is really beneficial to the comics audience to allow these kind of stories to get out instead of just, as you said, the conveyor belt of Marvel and DC, which push there every other week there's two things really i think the the ease of actually making the comic you've got things like uh, manga studio things like photoshop that are fairly easily accessible so the actual logistics of making the comic i think has got easier than than ever before and then the other part as i say is kickstart you've you, you know you're, you're able to make a comic and you're able to make one that actually looks like a comic not some underground magazine uh, and then Kickstarter on the on the back of that will allow you to reach a, a wider audience. So there is there is a, a real boom in indie books. To be honest, I, I buy more indie books than you know mainstream stuff at the minute. And it's just some really interesting stuff out there because everybody's able to take risks. You haven't got to appease an editor. You're not you're not buying into sort of 50 years of backstory. So a lot of the indie books, I think, there's some interesting stuff out there, and people are playing with different genres. I think a lot of the books will lack the polish of the big two, and that's to be expected. But um, Certainly in terms of story, in terms of sort of passion on the page, it's all there. So you've only got to look around a convention like this and you're seeing people just doing comics because they they love the medium, they want to get you know, you know, they want to get the stuff out there. And the passion really is on the page. It's some really interesting stuff. I think I sort of liken it to a lot of image books at the minute. They're taking risks and they're not going down the obvious superhero route. So you're getting a lot of a lot of horror comics I'm seeing, a lot of sort of comics that aren't superhero, just really interesting angles on things. And these are coming from people who are so passionate about comics that they just feel the need to sort of make their own, which is you know, as I say, that love for comics is is there on every indie creator's pages, really. You know, how did you go about finding somebody to actually print the books? Because obviously, in the UK, it must be a little bit more tricky to find somebody who can print what is an, essentially a comic rather yeah. than a booklet or whatever it is. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of. I mean, a, a simple sort of Google search will take you to a couple of the big ones. I, I print mine with Stuart Gould at UK Comics Creative, I think it is. But he's superb. And these guys will, will work with you in the formatting and the, you know, because it, it's difficult sometimes to um, get your get your work as a, a sort of 
you know, you've got to know the difference between RGB and CMYK and all the rest of it. And it's it's a tricky business. But these guys print comics, again, because they're passionate about the indie scene and they want to help. Obviously, you know, it's a business, but they're really, really helpful in um, bringing these things to life. And it's, you know, a big part of it, as I say, it doesn't feel like a, a sort of throwaway indie, you know, underground zine whatever you want to call it they're really polished the paper stock is beautiful the printing quality is great so you know i'll I'll stand by the format of my books they actually look like you know legitimate comics there's a few out there but a lot of the uh, indie press will feature adverts for these guys in the back of their books um so you've only got to pick up a handful of indie comics you'll see who printed them and again a simple web search will take you to these printers and they're, they're phenomenal they're, they'll support the books you know they're not just in it to print them off and rattle them off they'll they'll do a bit of marketing for you and they'll support the books and they'll there's a, a real community of people out there i think i think that's one of the words we hear a lot when we talk about the british kind of indie comic scene is that community not just amongst the creators but also amongst those people who are publishing distributing i mean um other than buying them online do you have do your books appear in any of the local comic shops yeah my books are on the nostalgic in town have got a nice little section at the back for indie and they're fantastic with their support because they don't take a commission they're just sort of here have the shelf space if you sell a copy 100 percent of the sale of that book goes straight to you and of a shop of that size you know they don't owe anyone any you know there's literally nothing in it for them other than it's a shop that loves comics obviously and you know the support that they give you is phenomenal and they're not going to push it because you know as i say there's nothing in it for them but just literally giving you shelf space is fantastic and i remember when when the guys for it was it was collected in omnibus collecting the first three issues and to go into nostalgia a shop that i've been to you know since i came to birmingham in 99 i think to see it on the shelf was phenomenal in a comic shop that i've been going to for years and it was actually i remember it really clearly was on the shelf next to a copy of 2000 ad which was a sort of formative comic certainly for me and i know a lot of people but to actually see it on the shelf is is quite a feeling i have to tell you it's one of the beauties of having a physical copy. I know a lot of um, comics go digital these days, but the idea of being in a shop and having a browse, and like yeah. you said, if it's next to 2000 AD, you'll pick it up, have a flick through. Yeah. And if, if you see what you like, you're going to pick up a copy. So yeah. the idea that, that, that nostalgia of putting your books out there, not hidden away per se, but giving you the opportunity to be picked up and seen by people who are there to buy comics yeah, is, is great. Yeah, absolutely. And every time I'm in there, I'll go to the indie uh, section at the back just push the guys to the front. Just, just bring it to the front a little <laughs> just, bit. Just a bit of rearranging yeah, on the racks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what would your advice be to somebody who's wanting to get into the industry now? I think this is probably a really good time to join if you fancy doing something. Yeah, I think, I think as you said earlier, it's, it, it really is a golden time for indie creators. You've got forums like this. You know, you've only got to look out the window here. There's a, a bunch of indie guys and there's no better time. Well, there's, there's certainly no excuse not to. I think you've got to have the passion. And I think if you're getting into it thinking, you know, I'm going to be working for Marvel in a couple of years, you've got to, you've got to burst that bubble quite early doors. You know, just getting, getting people to buy a copy you know, of an unknown, uh, an unknown comic book is, is a great feeling. And I think you've got to be in it because you just want to be making comics. I haven't got an end game. I haven't got a sort of, I don't want a film made of the guy. Well, you know, somebody's offering, (laughs) you know, it's, it's just being realistic and thinking I've read comics all my life. I love comics. I'm making comics. It it really is that simple. I just have that sense of pride of seeing your personal creation on the shelf as well. Yeah. And I, and I, and as I said, it, it completely turns around that whole Marvel DC. You've got a writer, you're going to have a sketcher, an inker, a yeah. colorist. You know, 
at least four to five different people's interpretations go into one comic book before it even hits the shelf. Yeah. And then you still have the creative editor, the, the publisher, everybody's going to be involved in that. Whereas something from the small press scene, it's yours, it's your baby from start to finish. And yeah, you, yeah. You and have you, that you, control. You've got to sort of, um, there's pros and cons to that. Obviously, the, the, the good thing is you're free to do whatever you want. You've got no editorialization, if that's even a word. But you, you know, you're, you're free to take risks, you're free to do whatever you want in the content of the comic. The downside of that is nobody's helping you market it nobody's out there you know pushing it into people's hands so you do become creator but then you've got to be business manager you've got to be an editor you've got to be a a marketing strategist or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. so you've got to wear a lot of different hats but if you're not 100% into it if your heart's not into it then you know it becomes I can imagine it becomes a bit of a chore so yeah I'm still I've been doing it on the indie scene for about three or four years now really still passionate about my product still passionate about getting my books out there but you know there's no two ways about it it is it's it's hard work you know it's it's the best work and to to sit at a table today with your comics in front of you and see people buying them that's a great feeling but it is it, it's hard work hard but gratifying absolutely yeah brilliant thank you so much for joining us where can we find you online www.theguyscomic.com and there's actually free free downloads of the books on there you can download the pdf online and read them for free because again you know i think once you start taking money into account and yeah. start worrying about sales my big priority is just getting people reading it and uh enjoying it hopefully and um, pop down to nostalgia pick yourself up a copy pop down to nostalgia anyway but definitely pick up with the guys it will be if i've been in there recently <laughs> it will be front and center <laughs> brilliant thanks very much lovely thank you we are joined by Jatinder from the Art of JSG. Jatinder, introduce yourself. Where are you from? What are you doing? Hi, I'm a Birmingham-based uh, artist. Um, doing a bit of writing. Currently, I'm producing uh, a couple of comic strips for Fly Comics. Uh, in the past, I've done uh, a couple of strips for Lucky Comics and Red Leaf Comics. You're here with your own personal art, and you also do a few comics yourself as well. Yeah. Do you want to let us know which ones we can? Which creations we can find on the shelves right for fly comics it's time worn tales i've done a three-page story in that uh, i think there's going to be time worn tales number two i'm just waiting on the editor i've finished one comic strip for that and i'm just finishing the second one for that so number two is almost in the bag the other comics that i have are robin hood chronicles i've done the cover for that southern heroes done four pages in cover and world war ii comics four pages in a cover do you find working on a variation of titles is quite interesting to you yeah at the moment most of the stories have been led by the writer i've I've been given a script. The current story that I've done, which I've almost finished, is actually written by me and drawn by me. And in some ways, it's easier when somebody else has written it because you don't have to worry about the ending. And with my self-written story, I keep changing my mind on how it's going to end. <laughs> Whereas if it was set story, then you think, right, that's all I've got to draw. So that's what um, we've had quite a few interviews today, and we've had quite a mix between small press and quite some of the large press people. And uh, you get to work on both kind of styles by the sound of it. So, what, do you find it's a different kind of mindset when you're getting involved in that? Most of the people I've worked with, they're all small press. The guy who does Lucky Comics and Red Leaf Comics, mm-hmm. he seems to have quite a lot of books out there. He's a regular publisher. 
I've been quite fortunate that sometimes when I've suggested something, they've agreed with it. But I'm a fairly amicable person. Occasionally they've suggested something and I've had to change it. Mm-hmm. And that's been okay because ultimately they're the ones that are publishing and they're putting their name to the book. And I wouldn't expect somebody to put their name to a book that I've helped with if they weren't comfortable with what I'd done. How's your process when you're developing art for somebody else's story is a lot of conversations or is a lot of notes that this provide to see what kind of style and what feel they want to give yeah what tends to happen is they'll send me a script and i'll do layouts just thumbnails suggesting where the characters are going to be how the page will be laid out send it to them and they'll say yes or no generally it's been yes then maybe i'll do detailed pencils or a bit more send it to them again and say this is the stage that it's at and finally i'll ink it color it well most of it's been black and white so and send them the finished product do you work digitally or do you work in a more traditional style in traditional pen and paper uh, ink in most cases i've inked a, a picture for the watermill school convention next week and in order to get all the shades right i have actually digitally colored it but it's just trying to get the tones right and it's very difficult to find a medium whether it's copics markers or to try and get the shades right the way you want whereas digitally they're so much easier personally i I prefer to work with pen and paper so i can see the product and i can see it on the wall and the thing with digital is sometimes you can see printed but it doesn't always print exactly the way you think it's going to print such is life how did you get into the comics industry you know were you drawing elsewhere and kind of like got into it or did you kind of just find yourself falling into it my family came to england in around 1968 so um obviously couldn't read or write english and I can still remember the first comics. One of the first ones was Captain Marvel. And the colours and the visual narrative meant that you didn't actually have to be able to speak the language, but you could see the action and you could see what's happening. And that's why I like comic art as opposed to just drawing splash pages or you know, uh, paintings. It's the narrative that interests me. When I was at school, uh, comic art wasn't really the in thing. I remember doing a couple of pieces that I thought were great, and I got a grade 4 CSC, which is really terrible. So basically, although I did some small sketches and I had something printed in the UK Marvel, uh, just a single sketch, I didn't actively pursue it. In the last seven years or so, the kids have grown up, I've got a lot more spare time, and I've started doing a lot more drawings and producing comics rather than just occasionally reading them, but um, that's been my uh, origin. Do you think the comic scene's had a bit of resurgence over the last few years? I mean, we've had the impact of the Marvel and DC cinema, which seems to have had a bit of a backfeed in getting people interested in comics again. I think it's actually backfired, because I've been to conventions where you see people dressed as comic characters, and you, know, you go up to them and say, oh, you, you know, you're such and such a character, and they'll turn around and say... I don't read comics, and you think, yeah, but it has happened, and they're just like the fancy costumes. Although they're comic conventions, I mean, this is great because there are fewer film people nowadays. There are conventions where you hardly see a comic. It's only comic convention in name. I think somebody said there's a convention next to where they were so glad they found one comic in the whole show. It seems to be this thing nowadays where it's pop culture and comics seem to be bleeding over into yeah. um, a modern thing, but that's another joy, as we said earlier, about small press, seeing how small press has yeah. been able to expand the digital market has freed a lot of artists to get into comics. 
whereas well, they wouldn't have had access before because they're not having a printer or a distributor or a publisher. In the 80s, I used to have friends who used to publish magazines, and if anybody remembers Arkansas, which at the time, because you have friends, you don't think much, but Arkansas, he interviewed quite a few well-known artists. At the time, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I do now. It's become more of a business, whereas in the older days, I don't think it was as much of a business, especially for the fans. Nowadays, it's very commercial. Mm. I mean, uh, I collect artwork as well, and if you wanted to buy artwork from certain yeah. artists, you'd be paying a few hundred pounds for a sketch, yeah. and that's probably just standard, whereas... In the old days, they'd probably just give you a sketch. So where can we find more information about you online? If you just search for Art of JSG, um, I've got a Facebook page, a DeviantArt page, a Twitter page, and they're all Art of JSG, all one word. Brilliant. Thanks very much for taking some time out with us. Thank today. you. So here in our studio in the wonderful BCU Parkside Media House, and we are joined by the amazing artist that is Mr. Reese Finlay. Thank Hello. you for coming in Thank and you joining for us. Me. Explain a little bit about what you do. See, so yeah, I'm a comic book creator, I guess would be the word. Writer slash artist. Rather than just a writer or just a illustrator. <laughs> <laughs> but I've kind of like finance, financial status kind of forced me to learn how to illustrate myself because yeah. as anyone knows about making a process of a comic it's quite expensive I mean you're paying an artist per page and mm-hmm. it rocks up and rocks up yeah. and it's very expensive I mean a short comic is reasonable cost but if you did want to do a graphic novel short yeah. one, I mean. <laughs> yeah. that so pound symbol starts running very quickly two years ago I basically self-taught myself everything about comics to kind of escape from a terrible career I was in at the time I used to work as a debt collector for a payday right. loan company you would go door to door collecting these loan repayments, mm-hmm. issuing loans, putting people in debt, yeah. being encouraged to give loans to people who couldn't really afford the repayments, yeah. ruining people's lives. And it was morally repugnant and mm-hmm. took its toll on my mental and physical health. Yeah. And obviously you can't imagine what sort of situations you find yourself in when you've gone into a block of council flats and only they can let you out because the way the lock system works and it's yeah. you can find yourself in some horrible situations yeah. and mm. it got to the point where to escape but I was like okay I'm gonna give up everything and try and chase a dream which was you know to do comic books and work in media and entertainment mm-hmm. so I just quit everything on January 1st 2015 yeah and started making comic books that's that's an impressive and bold decision to take bold some might say stupid, some might be right. And <laughs> um, it was a great year. I mean, we published five, six comics that year and mm-hmm. driving around the country doing all the comic cons and going on the podcasts and meeting all these great people. Yeah. It was amazing. And then October, November time, driving down to Devon to do a book sign, I was hit by a truck. And that kind of <laughs> pulled me out of that industry. And it's a, 2016 was probably like the worst year of my life. Hadn't made a comic. I'd kind of had a little sweet taste of the dream coming true. And then it's just kind of snatched away. Mm-hmm. Learning to walk again. I'm wearing like a leg brace right now. But ladies like limbs, right? It's kind of, kind of sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My engagement at the time broke down, so I found myself alone. It was just mm-hmm. a horrible place to be in. And then this is where we are now. The beautiful graphic novel you see before you, it was yeah. kind of me trying to get back on that horse. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of 
an autobiographical story. Isn't That's it? exactly what it is. It, it yeah. covers those years. Yeah. Everything leading up to how it was the story of how I got into comics and then the car crash that took me out of it and yeah. where I wanted to take it from there with my life. So it's a bit of a cathartic experience getting that story onto page. Once it was out, yeah. Um, obviously, I thought while writing it, it would be cathartic. I did this for me and to show my friends. I never intended to release it. It's just like, okay, it's been a year. Mm. I wonder if I could still do comics. And yeah. it turned out to be the best comic I've done. And it was, as a cathartic in that, it was very much a, a look of accidentally doing something good. Yeah. <laughs> I failed upwards. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was incredible. And the opportunities it's afforded, the critical mm. acclaim. We did it on Kickstarter and never thought we'd hit the target you know yeah. everyone has a kickstarter process you've got a month yeah to hit the target and i thought okay maybe on the 30th day we might just hit that target and yeah. we did it in less than 12 hours on the first day i mean when you're in a position like i am when i started the book and you think you're alone in the world and it's you think the odds are against you to know there's that kind of support network around you and that's the great mm-hmm. thing about comic fans and stuff there's a yeah. real sense of community there the thing we've had throughout the day is kickstarter is a brilliant way to launch and be able to tell i mean this is it's the ultimate personal story here. You can't really get any more personal and attached to yourself than writing an autobiography in a comic form. Yeah. But it, it, as I said, it seems to be a really good way of engaging with your audience and being able to speak directly rather than having some something in between. It's a lot easier to get to an open audience. I mean, if you're self-funding like I was every yeah. time before that, not many people are going to see it. Yeah. You're going to be at a convention with it. You're already in a lot of debt because you've paid everything up front. Yes. And you're trying to claw back that money. Yeah. It's very difficult. Fair play to anyone who does it. And obviously I was in a financial position where I couldn't afford to do that again. So we had to turn to Kickstarter. But it turned out to be an absolute blessing. I was never hugely fond of the idea of I'm making something give me money. So it was more of a basically a pre-order service. Yeah. You know, I'm selling that book today for ten pounds. Yeah. If you place it on a Kickstarter, you'd also pay ten pounds. Yeah. Whereas you see somewhere it's, you know, fifteen pounds to get a physical copy of the thirty page yeah. book. But then down the line, free quid at Comic Con. Yeah. I think that's a bit of an insult to the people who... Cause it's the factory version. Yeah, yeah so they're, they're taking the chance on you. Yeah. It's the gamble. Whereas when it's already out, we know if it's going to be good or bad. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much like an early access. If anybody plays computer games and they use Steam or something like that, it's like an early access system where you can support the people you want to support. Yeah. And as I said, um, we've, as I said we've been through lots of Kickstarters today, but this one, as I said, it's a very personal story. And being able to get that reach out there is probably a very powerful tool in comparison to like saying just dropping it onto as I said a vanity publisher or a self-published system and then you've got to also do your marketing you've got to, you are your entire business as one sole person yeah which is hard especially on a person like when it's so personal mm-hmm. normally it's a superhero book or whatever and you're, you're hiding behind that so oh, here's a superhero book yeah if it fails okay move on to the next one whereas mm-hmm. this is my life story it's yeah. like me in my most open and raw form mm-hmm. admitting to a lot of bad things I've done and yeah the moral burden that that carries with it and it's yeah. that's terrifying to put that out there online because if it did get rejected or yeah. mocked or anything that could be quite helpful yeah, and no. I was very lucky to not have that and, and how do you found the feedback for that process because I'm sure you probably had a lot of feedback from people that's when the catharsis came yeah. in I mean to have yeah. your peers and stuff um, obviously I'm a huge fan of the graphic memoir myself that's yeah. a posh word for it <laughs> the yeah. autobiographical graphic novel <laughs> oh I actually said it without joking right <laughs> I mean you've got stuff like Persepolis and yeah. there's one called The Spiral Cage by yeah. Al Davison you've probably heard of it it's a big deal mm-hmm. in that genre yeah and um, I did a talk 
with Ladies Do Comics, who are also here today. Yes, lovely people. And he was in the audience, and for him to come up to me afterwards and say how proud he is that I've done it myself, and yeah. you know, show myself in this kind of objective way. Sort of a lot of autobiography, yeah. autobiography, autobiographies. <laughs> yes. You kind of have the Alan Partridge, look how great I am, needless to say, I had the last line. And you cut out all the bad and just focus Yeah, on look how great I am. And it's, well, look how bad I am in my book. Yeah. I mean, was um, it a completely different creative process for you in comparison to something that you published before? Absolutely. So it wouldn't need a script because obviously I've, I've lived it's it. All it's, it's already yeah. stored now. I just yeah. put it out there and the art has taken a huge step up from what I was doing before. Two years ago, I couldn't draw. Yeah. I just <laughs> on scraps of paper just to make the comic I wanted to make and get it out there but now obviously I've learned so much by being surrounded by so many talented people you pick loads up by osmosis you go to all the classes and talks at the cons and you really develop so it's great to see how I've gone from I mean like if you look in the back of the book there's of what I did originally like that it's garbage and then two years later you're doing something a bit better yeah but again a great way to show it by putting it back into the book with your original art and then your current art it shows your growth as a person as well. Incredible. Over two years, it's, it'd be amazing to see two years from now what I'm doing. I mean, I've recently been lucky enough to be invited to do the trading card for Star Wars. Oh. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's life-changing. Yeah, I was going to say that. That's kind of like the ultimate seal of approval. Isn't you know, you, you're a kid watching Star Wars yeah. on video, wearing out those videotapes and then... Yes. I mean, we've got some new beautiful Star Wars art of it. Thank you, man. There for you. That's a gift from oh. me. Oh, thank you. Very so much. I hope you enjoyed the book. And yeah, it's brilliant. Love hearing your thoughts on it. It's lovely to see another Birmingham person in Felicity Jones. Two in my read because I've got to draw forty yeah. characters yeah. for these trading cards. You'd be surprised how many are actually from Birmingham. <laughs> yes, uh, it's brilliant to see. As we mentioned earlier, when I'm speaking to the Jedi he he was saying about how England-focused Star Wars has been. Yes, obviously a lot of it was filmed in Pinewood. But yeah, so a lot of it was cast in the UK. And it's, um, I forgot the name, is it Mark? Mark Silver. Yeah, yeah, he's. Axmo from Star Wars Episode 1. Exactly. Yeah. Birmingham Boy. <laughs> yes. And then. Local lad. Yeah, it's great how British it is. And I never would have dreamed that I'd be a part of it. And then I woke up one morning two weeks ago and I've got an email from Top saying, Do you want to be part of the Star Wars Masterworks line, which is like a premium yeah. line of trading cards? I don't know. If I'm not busy, I suppose I could do that. <laughs> of course I'm going to do it. Star it's Wars. Because <laughs> we put the phone down for a second, then scream, and then go, Yes. <laughs> I didn't even do that. I wasn't even cool about it. I didn't play hard to get. I was like, Please, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> and then you, you, know, you spend seven days waiting for a FedEx parcel to arrive, yes. just looking out the window. Reese, going to come and feed it now? Just yeah. saying FedEx is here. Um, <laughs> I've just started it now and it's it's incredible. Unfortunately, I can't show up in stuff no, on social media. I can, I can understand. But once the cards come out, I'll be fine. Look, yes. look, I did a Star Wars! Brilliant. And it's to go from, from being a nobody to being a comic artist to... Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I'm probably part, not sorry. Part of the Star Wars but family, yes. To, yeah, to being close to something you've been a part of your childhood and one of the most important things in your world, to be a part of that. It's yeah. life-changing. Right, and where can we find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Reesey Time. Mm-hmm. Terrible name. <laughs> um, recently, art and design on Facebook, and recently yeah. on Instagram. And you have a website as well. See, it hasn't been updated in years, so I'd say just don't yeah. go near that one. <laughs> all, all the best uh, websites haven't been updated in years. <laughs> I find social media is the best way to reach anyone yeah. these days. No, absolutely. Thank you very much for taking. Thank you for having me. It's been nice. Have a quick chat with us today. It's been entertaining and revealing. <laughs> it has. It's, it's been my first interview as a part of our book, and it's it's interesting to put everything out there on a personal level yeah whereas you know if you've done sci-fi whatever it's not yeah, brilliant thank but you risky okay. cheers
Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. If you'd like to join our listener supporters, please join us at patreon.com forward slash Brum Radio.